North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. We're joined on The Impossible State today by Dr. Key Park, who is a lecturer in global health at Harvard Med School. We're also joined by my colleague, as always, Dr. Victor Cha, Korea Chair at CSIS and Senior VP. And we're joined by a very special guest at CSIS, my dear friend and colleague, Steve Morrison, Dr. Steve Morrison, who is also a Senior VP at CSIS and the head of our global health program. Gentlemen, welcome. We got to talk about North Korea and COVID because this is a subject that is dire in North Korea. They're locked down. Key and Victor, you both have written about this recently. Key, I want to go to you first. What what do you see as the situation in North Korea? Can you give us a sense of what's going on there? Yeah, sure, Andrew. Let's just discuss the question of whether we think there's COVID inside North Korea. We should just sort of kind of come to a a, a reasonable assessment of that. So, you know, the press and a lot, many of the experts really discount their North Korea's claims that they have no COVID confirmed cases within their borders. I actually think that they have succeeded for the most part in keeping the virus out of their country. And there are several reasons for that. The biggest one is they closed their borders, uh, sealed their borders, really, as early as January 22nd, which is even before the Chinese shut down Wuhan and the Hubei province. And they maintained this lockdown stature throughout the year and even now. They also have taken a very serious approach to the threat. You know, if you look at the U.S. and and the criticism is we didn't take it very seriously, and that's true. But in the in the North Korea, what they've done is they took it seriously, maybe even too seriously. And so there's some criticism about that. So you know, the, the public health measures, strong governance, I think they maintained the virus out. And I'll give you some data points that makes me wonder, you know, how how confident they feel about you know being being able to keep the virus out. And that you know, the, the most recent one is the Eighth Congress. You know, the big 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 event they had, and thousands of people inside this hall. And this was just in January, right? Yeah, the top leadership is in the same room, same same chamber, and and they were not wearing masks. And you know we could talk a little bit about their their testing capacity and their protocol, but you know they they feel pretty confident that they were able to keep the virus out, and you know, it shows. Because the dear leader was in that room. Yes, he was. So Victor, you wrote about this for NBC. Tell us, uh, there's a lot of implications of this that are locked down, and we got to get into that. But what is your big takeaway from what's going on right now. I mean, they're, they're even more isolated than they were before, and that was pretty isolated. So what's happening here? So Key's the real expert on sort of the medical situation on the ground there. I would say the big takeaway is that if Key's right and they don't have COVID inside the country, this could be perhaps the country, the only country in the world without COVID but yet the country most affected by COVID in the sense that the precautions that they have taken and as they have taken in the past, anytime there's a pandemic, whether it's SARS or, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or even Ebola, the lockdown measures that they take really, as Key said, you know, it may be even over the top. They really go over the top because of the vulnerabilities in their public health system, you know, quite obviously. But in this case, 
you know, the lockdown has been, we've been over a year, this country has been locked down, which is even a long time for North Korea. We always think of them as this very isolated country. But when, you know, when things are normal, it's isolated, but there's still a lot of stuff that happens across the border, particularly with China and with others, both legal and illegal. But now it's a complete and total shutdown. And we're sort of seeing it in their economic numbers at the end of the year. We're seeing it in at least what is reported in terms of year-on-year bilateral trade with China. You know, we're talking about magnitudes of 80 to 90% decreases in trade with China, you know, year-on-year, October last year. And an economy that has contracted by somewhere between 8 and 10%, depending on who you ask, which is these are huge. And of course, what's the implications of that for the regime going forward? So I think that's like the big takeaway is that we're all being affected in negative ways by COVID, but the country that may not have it in their country at all may be the most affected by that. So they're, they're essentially trading with nobody, because if they're not trading with China, that means nobody's trading with them, correct? Yeah, on a good, you know, on a normal day, 90% of their external trade is with one country, and that's China. And that border has been, you know, effectively sealed shut. He could speak better this than I, but I've heard from different groups that, you know, there's stuff that sits on the Chinese side of the border, including medicine, that is just sitting there and not getting in because the North Koreans won't open the border. Is it sitting there because they're worried that it's going to be contaminated, it's going to bring virus in? Yeah, I think that's certainly part of the reason. And, you know, the medicine's expiring or food, other things are just kind of sitting there. And Again, it's an extraordinary situation. They have, they have shut down before. Like when South Korea had the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in what was it, 2015? The North Koreans shut down because of that. But, but that was like a two to three month event in South Korea, right? But the North Koreans stayed shut down like for seven months or so. They stayed shut down long after. And so you can just imagine if we're still in the middle of this and and we've been shut down for a year now, they're shut down for a year. And if we start coming out of this, you know, who knows? I mean, Key and Steve could speak this. If we start to turn the corner sometime in the summer, you know, depending on when they get vaccines, even if they get vaccines, they could be shut down for much longer. And the long-term implications of that for the economy are not at all clear. But it's not good. And Steve, it's my understanding that North Koreans haven't reached out to even the Chinese or the Russians for vaccine either. They've not reached out yet to the Russians, the Chinese, or the Indian sources. They've filed for and become a member of COVAX, and they've been offered 2 million doses, which is enough to cover 4% of their population on a two-dose regimen. As I understand it, it's the AstraZeneca vaccine. Given the problems that AstraZeneca has hit in South Africa, that may be under some some reevaluation. I don't know. I have no idea. And he may know, but I have no idea what the discussions are in terms of access, and observation, and readiness. In other words, Gavi is going to look at this and say, you have to, first of all, they submitted a plan and the plan said they would be dealing with healthcare workers, elderly folks with underlying conditions for that 4%, enough doses for 1 million people. And so external folks have to be in there to evaluate, okay, are they capable of handling this? But moreover, to oversee the implementation so the stuff just doesn't go to party officials at party congresses. Neither of those steps has been taken. And let me emphasize, in a normal time, you would have within North Korea 45 to 50 international organization, multilateral institution personnel. Today, there's two plus two consultants, and they're about to leave. So when you're looking at 
readiness, evaluation, entry of staff, and you've got these severe shutdown conditions, 30-day, 40-day quarantine measures in force. And there's hundreds upon hundreds of containers that are humanitarian assistance, basic stuff to keep the daily economy rolling over, stuff that keeps local traders alive. All of that stuff has stopped. It's not just that your trade with China has dropped by 80% and you're at 85 to 10% drop of your GDP. All of the key inputs to keep local markets going are gone if they're dependent on any external input. The Party Congress has reimposed lots of controls and the like. So it's a very desperate situation. I just want to add one other thing. You know, in terms of knowing whether or not there is COVID in the country, I agree with Key's general thought around this. I would add, we really don't know. I mean, the North Koreans are doing almost zero testing. 700 tests a week is, is almost zero. No one in the capital can get outside. They're not allowed into markets. There's no observers. Diplomats cannot observe. There's no testing. There's no genomic sequencing. We don't know if variants are running wild there. There's no immunity testing going on. So we're completely blind on all of this. We have also had the TV program disrupted. They've run out of supplies as of December. They ran out of the multi-resistant drug medication somewhere in the middle of last year. The controls on TB have lapsed. The Global Fund signed a renewal agreement in January of 2020 to renew its $41 million multi-year TB program. All of those supplies are stuck at the border. So we could be seeing renascent tuberculosis. We could obviously be seeing coughs and flus, and we could be seeing COVID all mixed together with no testing regimes to tell us. And yes, they could be having party congresses and people look healthy, but people die of a lot of different things and a lot of respiratory diseases. And this place is a blank spot in terms of knowing what the hell's going on. So I would be a little cautious about all of that. And I do think that one other thing is that two of the neighboring provinces, Jilin and another, have had pretty big outbreaks recently. And this stuff moves. This virus moves. And tightened border controls, some respects, don't have a whole lot of meaning here. I still believe that this is such a pernicious and fast-moving virus. The advent of the variants, I think, is going to send Kim Jong-un around the bend. I'd like to know what Key and Victor have to say about that. But if you're a paranoid, willing to shut your economy down to the degree that he is, and now he starts reading the papers about the variants, let's see. The last point I make is there's reports that the Chinese are trading humanitarian aid for coal, that there's been some coal transmissions, that this has reached a, such a desperate situation. You just look at all of the numbers and look at all the closures. This must be truly desperate internally, that something has to give, I would think. So, Steve, you're, you're talking about the neighboring provinces in China. So you're saying Jilin and Liaoning. Key, Steve just laid a lot out there. And I want to ask you, you know, if, if the North Koreans, you know, haven't had substantial outbreaks yet, what do they really need to be worried about coming their way? Yeah, so Steve's right. No one really knows for sure what's going on. And their testing capacity is very limited. You know, they had a PCR machine that they were trained to do diagnostics a year before the, the, the pandemic. They were certified in Hong Kong. And that, that, that was the only machine that we were aware of in Pyongyang when the epidemic hit. And that machine was running. They got the test kits from Russia and China initially. 
Then they submitted a request for additional machines, and then they received through WHO, UNICEF, and IFRC, maybe MSF, additional machines, and we think they have between 15 to 20 machines now. Their initial strategic COVID response preparedness plan asked for about that many machines to people in all the provinces. Definitely not enough for a comprehensive nationwide testing protocol, for, for sure. And what they've been doing is testing symptomatic people, people that are suspected, you know, people that have respiratory symptoms, you know, coughing, sneezing, fevers, those kind of patients. But we all know that the spread occurs between asymptomatic carriers, right? And uh, so they actually went to what, what they call uh, enhanced surveillance towards uh, some around um, October. We think they got additional machines and testing kits around that time. But even those enhanced testing is not enough to see where they are. You know, they're still flying blind. Now, what they do have is, and we all know this, they have a very strict rules about mobility. So if someone comes in over the northern provinces, someone who's got the virus and, and gets sick, they will be very quick to find out who this person is and trace their contacts pretty quickly without having to do the testing and then isolate them. And we know when you quarantine someone, two things happen. Either they heal from it and they're done, even with or without testing, or they actually get sick and die. But there's a way to control the spread just through using low-tech public health you know, measures that they did 100 years ago you know, with the Spanish flu. It is still effective. And then North Korea, I would argue, is able to apply those non-medical interventions very, very uh, successfully. But it's possible that they've had these kinds of outbreaks at some of the bordering provinces, and we just don't know about it. Key, can I ask you just one question on this? If, let's say you have community transmission that begins in one region, bordering on Jilin, and then it begins to spread, and they don't have the ability to track this, and it has, say, 1% mortality, would you begin to see hospitals filling up? In other words, the 15 to 20% who get severe illness, and then that results in, say, a 1% mortality. I could imagine a scenario where that happens, and nobody reports it, and it's impossible to see, and it's just 1% of that area dies. And it's in a situation where you could attribute those deaths to any number of things. There's no published data on ICU bed usage, is there? No, no one really knows how many ventilators there are in North Korea. What kind of ICU coverage do they have in their hospitals? So looking at the Pyongyang Medical College Hospital, which is where I spent most of my time, and also worked at the Red Cross Hospital, their ICU, the Pyongyang Medical College Hospital, which is their premier teaching institution, I would say they would have no more than 20 ventilators in that entire hospital. That's just my guess. Yeah. So you can imagine in the provinces, I would not think that they would have more than that. So it could sweep through and wipe out a certain number of people, but it's not going to be 10% of your population. It's going to be 1%. North Koreans are really good at what we call mitigation measures. Look what happened in Kaesong. There was a, a suspected defector. He was actually tested multiple times, and he was actually negative. But because he was a person who came in from the outside, they assumed the worst that he was carrying the virus. They locked down the entire city immediately, right? So then they were in a quarantine for two or three weeks. And that's exactly what I would expect the North Koreans to do anywhere where there's, there's a suspected entry of a foreigner, let's say, or even a suspected case. They will literally lock down the whole city or region until they can figure out if there's going to be an outbreak or not. So, Victor, I have to ask you, because if, if Sumi Terry was here, I would definitely be asking her this. With all this control, this is even more control than the people of North Korea are used to, and they're used to a lot of control. And the economy 
as you say, contracting, people not being able to move, you know, even more than normal. Are, are people getting really angry? And is this a potential threat to the regime? I don't know if it's a threat to the regime, but I do think that there is, I mean, there are sort of secondary and tertiary consequences of these sorts of mitigation techniques that Key is talking about. And I'm, I'm putting aside, I'll leave for the experts the whole question of what that means in terms of sort of isolating a group, but then really having nothing to take care of them with, right? They don't have ventilators, they don't have the right drugs and things. So what happens to those people? So they could be successfully containing and quarantining, but you know, what happens to those people? Because many of them may not. They don't have access to Regeneron. No, I, yeah, I, I would, I would <laughs> doubt that. But I think a broader concern is that if you have an economy that's contracting as much as North Korea is contracting, I mean, you know, this is a lot. This 8 to 10% in one year is a huge contraction of the economy. One of the things that they said in the Workers' Party speech suggested that the government would take more control of the markets in North Korea. The markets are the best thing that's ever happened to North Korea. The markets grew out of the famine when the public distribution system broke down. And for the average North Korean, 70% of their daily life now, according to defector testimony in our research, you know, 70% of their daily life comes from the markets. It doesn't come from the government. And so the concern is that the government, because of the economic situation and the dire need for hard currency, may try to implement policies that try to take control of markets and basically take hard currency out of the system. They've done this in the past through currency redenomination, where basically they, they pass a law or they issue a mandate saying you have until uh, March 1st to turn in basically 500 U.S. dollars worth of hard currency, and you will get the new North Korean currency. And then the other currency is either worthless or you can't turn it anymore, right? And so they've done this twice before as a way to try to reduce disposable income and private savings in the system. And it's been the anecdotally the times when the, the public has gotten the most angry, whenever there's anti-market activities that are used by the government. And so it's not inconceivable that they could try, even though, you know, these things were a disaster in the past. The last time they did it, the people were so angry, they took the finance minister and they literally executed him in public as an admission that it was a bad policy. But, you know, when you're in a desperate situation, uh, as they are, and you need hard currency, you can't rule it out, especially because they, they kind of messaged it or signaled it was a possibility in the January Workers' Party Congress. So, so that, you know, that's a real concern. And again, it comes out of desperation. It comes out of the desperation of the regime. Steve? If the government is this cruel and this hard over to close down its economy and shut its borders, maybe it's successful at controlling COVID, but it's destroying its, its internal standing and its, its local markets and, and the like. It also is really upending the debate around sanctions, right? Because it's imposing its own sanctions upon itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. that's exactly Victor's point. Yeah, all around its borders is this mass of stuff that the world wants to give to North Koreans to make their lives safer and healthier. Can't get it in there. Yeah, yeah, that's no, true. That sort of begs the question: What should the international community be doing and thinking about this? I mean, I expect that if the government in North Korea does make a determination that it really does want to get its hands on vaccines, it doesn't have to go through COVAX. It can cut a bilateral deal with the Indians, the Russians, the Chinese. It can do that in an afternoon and get what it needs with very few preconditions attached. 
But the bigger issue of how do you avoid a complete collapse of your rural and semi-rural and small-town economies? We have to remember, these problems are on top of what they have already experienced over the past year or two years, which is the most robust UN sanctions regime ever, where they're sanctioning not just specialized activities related to proliferation financing, but general trade has been sanctioned with North Korea. And then on top of that, they had the worst flooding that they've had in quite some time this past summer during the monsoon season that has depleted food stocks, you know, for the harvest in the fall. So it's a cascade of things that have affected this country. On the sanction side, this is quite perplexing for U.S. policy because, you know, as the Biden administration is doing their policy review on North Korea, which they're in the middle of now, you know, one of the things that naturally comes up is, you know, what do you do with sanctions? Are you willing to relax some sanction, this sort of thing? But even relaxing sanctions at this point has no meaningful impact because the country is completely shut down. And so, you know, and we can tell the Chinese, you've got to be tougher on North Korea, sanction them harder. It doesn't really matter. Because <laughs> there's stuff all sitting on the runway, yeah. Yeah, they're, I mean, they, they have imposed the, the most robust sanctions regime ever in the history of the country right now by themselves. What I wanted to add was, you know, there's a history of North Korea dealing with external threat and, and requiring or requesting the citizens to experience massive sacrifices. This is the nuclear weapons program, right? And the missile program. They knew, they knew it was going to create all kinds of hardship for their country. It was a strategic decision with, the, with trade-offs. And they did it anyway. And I think that the North Korean people, you know, I'm sure there are people who are really not happy about the fact that their you know, livelihood may have been cut off. But there's this whole sense of national... Juche, right? This is solidarity saying we need to protect North Korean lives from this external threat. And if, if that means we will, you know, stop our trade with China for a while and close our borders to international humanitarian aid, so be it. They're not in a hurry. That's the impression I get. They're not in a hurry to like, let's reopen really quickly. They say, well, you know, we'll reopen when the, the pandemic is over. Gosh, you know, who knows? But I certainly don't get the feeling that they're desperate. That's really interesting. It either speaks to the incredible, and we shouldn't underestimate, the incredible resilience of a brittle regime. I mean, you know, everybody else has collapsed that was like them. They're the only one that's still there. You know, they survived a famine in the 1990s, survived sudden death of two leaders. But this is, I mean, the thing that I, and I don't know the answer to this, but, you know, this border has been closed for over a year now. And my guess is it will be closed for the rest of this year right? Unless there's some dramatic turnaround. And even if they get the 2 million vaccines from COVAX, that's only 4% of the population. That's just not enough for them to feel, unless they decide not to vaccinate the healthcare workers, as they say, and, and vaccinate traders and the military and the elite, you know, that board is going to stay closed for at least another year. And I just don't know how they manage. I really don't. Isn't that a formula for if they eventually reopen? Just discovering a wholesale humanitarian and public health disaster? Yeah, no, Steve, you're right. There are things that are what we call secondary impact and the effects of the border closure. Uh, we know that poverty is going to get worse. And of course, the lower socioeconomic classes are the ones that, that bear the brunt of this. And their poverty is actually uh, associated with mortality. More people will die as an increasing poverty levels. Their health system will degrade for sure. Their supply chain issues 
for one, and then the replacement of parts, forget about that. And then there's also, you know, health-seeking behavior goes down during lockdowns. And then, of course, you know, we talked about uh, humanitarian assistance. That's all uh, come to a standstill. So there's a, a baseline number of people who die every year in every country. We call them premature deaths, and we have them in the U.S. as well. And if you look at what happened with COVID deaths, there's actually an extra number above the COVID deaths that is above and beyond what we expect every year. And that's the excess deaths. And these are the, the sort of the secondary uh, effects of it. In North Korea, that number is about 250,000 people a year, premature deaths. And, you know, it, we think as many as additional 100,000 people could die as a result of the, you know, the poverty, health system degradation, and, and loss of humanitarian aid. And this is a per year number. So there's going to be some steep costs, human costs, human lives. And then we'll find that out once we go in and, and start collecting data from, from North Koreans. Whether we get that or not, we're not sure. But the, you know, UNICEF and WHO has some mechanisms to get some of those numbers. So let, let me ask all of you, with all these difficulties in this, this scenario, how does the U.S., and Victor, you just mentioned this, that the Biden administration is going through a policy review of North Korea. How does the U.S. make policy towards North Korea, given all these factors? Not easily. As we said, one of the big questions is, what does the administration want to do on the humanitarian side with regard to North Korea? I mean, it's pretty clear what needs to be done on the nuclear side. And, you know, hopefully the North Koreans will not do some sort of provocation as they have done in the past. They did it, you know, to Trump and they did it to Obama almost as soon as after they took office. So hopefully we won't have a situation like that, which creates a crisis, which the administration will have to respond to. Absent something like that, you know, I think the big question is not what to do on the nuclear program, because, you know, I think we have some models for how we do that, but it's really how to deal with this humanitarian situation and whether the humanitarian situation should be part of some sort of package of re-engagement with North Korea. You know, the Obama administration did that at one point in 2012, Key may remember in 2012 with, with Rice. So, you know, I think that that's going to be one of the big policy questions. Steve, what, what's your take on this? It's interesting that, you know, COVAX, the, the, the government's come to COVAX to request the 2 million doses. So it's, it's making one exception to an international institution to do something new and different. And it's joined COVAX. The U.S. has joined COVAX. The U.S. has made it under the December facility, emergency stimulus facility under the Trump administration. Congress passed $4 billion contribution to Gavi for procurement and distribution of vaccines. Still to be worked out, all the details. It's two-year money it's through USAID. The administration has to work that out. So there's some co-joining somewhere along the way in terms of Gavi's one of our biggest partners in global health. There's a $4 billion commitment to COVAX. The North Koreans have come in and made this request. So there's a little space there to try and be helpful in moving, moving that along and trying to make that workable. Maybe there's a little crack in the door and that's something that we could that we could work on and maybe the North Korea, it signals something about the North Koreans understanding they need to get something in the works for their own populations. We are seeing populations all over the world where you cannot move vaccines. And keep in mind over, over 150 countries in the world have not delivered a single vaccine. And populations all over the world are pissed off and they're making it known. And North Koreans are no, no exception here. So maybe this signals something that's going on and it's a crack in the door and we can work on it and 
We've got WHO as a partner here. WHO has good standing still with the North Koreans. They're part of COVAX. They're one of the three partners there. Maybe there's some opportunities for offshore dialogue with the North Koreans around how to handle all of this. In terms of the humanitarian agenda, I think that is absolutely urgent and, 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 de- and desperate. And they've never walked back from their uh, relationships with UNICEF, WHO, with the NGOs like Christian Friends of Korea, groups that have been operating there for decades. They're all stalled out. So maybe then the discussion moves to, you have nothing against these operations and what they do. Your concern is contamination and entry of the virus into your country. Well, maybe we can figure out some way. All of these things fall under the exemptions under the international sanctions, right? As humanitarian, medical, health-based, emergency humanitarian relief. So the sanctions piece is not the blockage. It's the concern about the virus and the reintroduction of virus. And so maybe that's a place to start a dialogue. Those are just two thoughts. Key, get the last word on this. Yeah, thank you. When they, the Biden administration is conducting a policy review, they've said as much. They have to look at the last four years, right? So what, what worked and what didn't work? And I would argue that, that the maximum pressure strategy backfired, at least from, the, from a humanitarian standpoint. And Steve has done really good work highlighting you know, the politicization of uh, humanitarian aid. The U.S. actually pressured Global Fund to basically pull out of North Korea for providing medications for life-saving tuberculosis medicines. We had a session about this at the CSIS. This was not a good idea for a couple of reasons. One, we should never be tying political objectives to humanitarian assistance. They should be separated. We know that. Everybody knows the principled approach to it, but we completely disregarded it. And I think because of the pandemic, that issue becomes even more urgent and the new administration really should try to split as best as they can humanitarian assistance and then politics, you know, the traditional security challenges, and really preserve the aid based on need only and not try to meddle with it. You know, one thing I would tell you North Koreans would be somewhat afraid of is the U.S. joining COVAX. Why is that? Well, they can come in and say, we're not sure we want to give the next allotment for Gabby until we do this and that. Or, you know, there could be some ways to get their influence in there, which they've done before. If you look at the new National Security Directive number one, which has to do with you know, reestablishing U.S.'s leadership role in global COVID response, one thing they will look at, it was, in, it was in there, was to look at the current sanctions regime, both unilateral and multilateral sanctions, as they affect countries to, to respond to COVID. I think that was really encouraging to see that in there. So if they can approach the humanitarian assistance in a very principled way and win the trust of the North Koreans, that, that this is a new administration, that could open up some, some possibilities. Can I just add one thing to Key's, Key's great comments there? You know, the Global Fund was pressured by the Japanese and the Americans to, to shut down its program a few years ago, and that was a terrible decision. But then, the, then they were, the board reversed itself, and they reintroduced the program, and they, re, they signed their agreement in January of 2020, and they resumed a $41 million multi-year TB program. The U.S. stood by that, and the U.S. remains the largest donor to the Global Fund. And the Global Fund in this period, it's important to add, of COVID, has been extremely creative and expansionary in its work under Peter Sand's leadership in order to meet the other requirements of COVID response in terms of PPE, protective gear, oxygen, training, expert personnel, and the like. So the Global Fund has, has really been, been very innovative and very adaptive, and, and it has good standing within North Korea. There's no reason why 
if the North Koreans are looking to, to re-engage with the outside world. They can't do it through these multilateral institutions like Gavi and the Global Fund, which the U.S. is the principal backer. It doesn't have to, doesn't have, to have a big U.S. flag pasted on it. Uh, these are institutions that work, institutions that are very highly regarded by the North Koreans and by others outside. I'm going to take a quick dissenting view on what Steve just said. I'll tell you this, we're trying to ha- convene a sort of a health expert uh, roundtable, knowledge sharing, to explore what are the best ways to reopen, right? Uh, so well, can we provide some technical assistance and, 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 and that? So we're trying to list the, the different organizations to invite. And Gavi was clearly, you know, part of that list of people to invite. And I mentioned, what about Global Fund? And uh, so I can't tell you who, you know, who said it, but the, the, it was someone from the North Korea side saying, uh, no. <laughs> you know, the damage is done, I think. There's, it's going to take some time for them to regain their, their trust. They're still angry. They still are, yes. Yeah. Well, they're not exactly a regime that's known for their forgiveness and for not holding grudges. So, And Victor knows that better than anybody. And Gavi never wavered during this time. And they appreciate that, too. Well, gentlemen, this is a fascinating discussion, and I think it's one that will have to be continued. Victor, Key, Steve, thank you for today helping us understand more about the impossible state with regard to COVID and all of its implications. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Victor and Key. Thanks for a great discussion, gentlemen. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.